and welcome to the ATS RX podcast, the podcast that takes complex issues involving medication use in the ICU and breaks it down into practical and usable information for the bedside. This podcast is presented to you by the ATS Pharmacy Working Group. My name is Carolyn Bell, and I'm the Medical Surgical ICU Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina, and I will be moderating today's podcast. Our podcast is for educational purposes only. We will cover material that represents the approach, view, or opinion of our speaker uh, that may be helpful to others, but not necessarily represent the views or opinions of ATS. Today, we are joined by two speakers who are well-respected for their work involving complex issues with sepsis and septic shock. First, we have Dr. Gretchen Sacha, a medical ICU pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. She completed her postdoctorate training at the Cleveland Clinic and since has established her research track in the realm of hemodynamics, septic shock, and vasoactive agents with a particular focus on the utilization and timing of vasopressin initiation. She has over 30 peer-reviewed publications and book chapters, most regarding hemodynamics and vasoactive agents. Next, we have Patrick Yerovshevsky, who's a pharmacist in the cardiothoracic surgery and ECMO program at Mayo Clinic. He's board certified in critical care pharmacotherapy and has dual academic appointments as an assistant professor in the fields of anesthesiology and pharmacy in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. He serves as vice chair of pharmacy research at Mayo Clinic, and his research focuses on the mechanisms, risk factors, treatment and outcomes of vasodilatory shock and optimizing the management and outcomes of patients requiring mechanical circulatory support for acute cardiorespiratory failure. So today we're gonna be focusing on the use of non-catecholamine vasopressors in septic shock. Um, So I'll start with a question for you, Gretchen. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines in 2021 distinguished vasopressin as the second-line agent recommended for patients on norepinephrine who are not achieving their MAP goal. Is this how you utilize vasopressin, and how do you decide uh, who it should be initiated in? So this is a really great question, and the short answer is yes. In practice, I utilize vasopressin as my typical second-line vasoactive agent in patients with septic shock. With, of course, the caveat being that this is my practice as long as there's no cardiogenic component to the patient's shock state. But I'll give a little bit of the longer answer, which is that there's so much we don't know about vasopressin, but I think it's prudent to discuss some of the things that we do know, which might guide my decision to continue utilizing vasopressin. So we know that overall there are conflicting and uncertain conclusions regarding its impact on clinical outcomes from our randomized controlled trials and then subsequent meta-analyses as well. But we also know that about 45 to 50% of patients who receive vasopressin have a positive hemodynamic response to its initiation, and that having that positive response is associated with reduced mortality. But what we don't really know is who's going to have a positive hemodynamic response and then how to determine if they're going to respond. But regardless, despite the overall lack of benefit seen in some of the landmark trials, the fact that we know some patients respond to vasopressin And because that response is associated with improved outcomes, this still drives my recommendations to utilize it in my patients, of course, as an adjunct to norepinephrine in those who are not optimized hemodynamically on norepinephrine alone. I think it's also interesting that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines make a remark about uh, vasopressin, which states, in our practice, vasopressin is usually started when the dose of norepinephrine is in the range of 0.5 
0.25 to 0.5 micrograms per kilo per minute. What do these recommendations mean to you? Yeah, I also agree. I was um, pretty excited to see this comment noted in the 2021 guidelines for a few reasons. So first, it's the first time that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has provided any type of guidance on how to use vasopressin and when to use vasopressin, which is a huge step in my opinion. Secondly, to me, I interpret this as they recommend earlier initiation and consideration of vasopressin rather than waiting until the patient is on high doses of catecholamines. Lastly, although not directly your question, I think it's also important to note that they are differentiating vasopressin from epinephrine in this iteration, which I think is extremely important because these agents should probably not be utilized interchangeably as I would lean towards the utilization of epinephrine or an agent with more inotropic support in patients with LV hypokinesia or cardiac compromise, whereas I would not look to vasopressin in those situations. So when do you initiate vasopressin in your practice? Well, I'm going to apologize up front because you're asking the question I'm very most passionate about. So I have many thoughts on this. Um, so I recommend vasopressin be initiated early in the patient's course of shock. And the reason for this is multifold. So we know that VAST did not find any differences in mortality in the overall included patient population, but they did find a benefit with vasopressin's initiation in the group of patients with less severe shock or those requiring less than 15 mics per minute of norepinephrine at randomization, and then also in those with a lactate concentration less than or equal to 1.4 millimoles per liter at randomization. Now, these data to me indicate that initiating vasopressin earlier rather than when the patient has progressed to what can be defined as severe septic shock is likely a benefit. But I want to pair this with the most recent data that myself and several of my colleagues recently published in Critical Care Medicine that evaluated the association of norepinephrine dose, lactate concentration, as well as timing of vasopressin initiation with mortality. I and mean, we evaluated over 1,600 patients who received vasopressin for septic shock. And what we found in this study, really briefly again, because I can talk about this for hours, is that when looking at norepinephrine dose at vasopressin initiation, the odds of in-hospital mortality increased 20% for each 10 mic per minute increase in that norepinephrine dose at vasopressin initiation, only up to 60 mics per minute. And then when the dose exceeded 60 mics per minute, there was no association on mortality. So to me, indicating in patients who receive vasopressin, the lowest predicted rates of mortality were seen at those lower doses of norepinephrine. Now, looking at lactate, we found a linear association with lactate and mortality, meaning that mortality linearly increased as the lactate concentration at vasopressin initiation increased. And both of these findings, I'm going to note, corroborate the findings that I mentioned from FAST, indicating that earlier initiation of vasopressin really seems to be one of the main factors driving its benefit. So all of that being said, I recommend early initiation of vasopressin. So essentially in a patient in which you feel they're clinically progressing and not responsive to norepinephrine alone, I recommend starting vasopressin early, typically when the dose of norepinephrine is around or between 10 to 15 mics per minute. So it sounds like these recent studies that you've done have changed your practice. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. My practice has really changed. Um, and I'll play devil's advocate for a minute too, because I think it can be really easy to argue that VAST and Vanish were our big RCTs and definitively prove that vasopressin overall doesn't impact mortality. But I would counter argue that these newer data indicate potentially that these trials didn't initiate vasopressin early enough to re reveal its benefit. 
and its benefit may have been masked by those who had vasopressin initiated too late. So to clarify, the mean dose of norepinephrine at vasopressin initiation and fast was 20 with a standard deviation of around 18. So a pretty wide range, and this is in mics per minute. And then Vanish, although set up in an attempt to look at early initiation of vasopressin, randomized patients when the norepinephrine dose was at a median of 0.16 mics per kilo per minute with an interquartile range of anywhere from 0.1 up to 0.31 mics per kilo per minute. And in a 75 kilo patient, that could be 7.5 mics per minute up to 23 mics per minute. So also a pretty large range. So ultimately, I, I still think we need more prospective data to look at vasopressin timing, but I do feel we have enough data to indicate that there really might be something to its initiation and the timing of its initiation. And until we have that data, I'm just going to continue to recommend it be initiated earlier in the course of doc. Would you ever use it before the patient reaches that 0.25 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute threshold that the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommend? Yeah, I think I would. So again, at my institution, at least we don't practice with weight-based dosing. So my recommendation tends to be around 10 to 15 mics per minute, but I would then equate that to the weight-based dosing at your institution, but it will tend to be a little bit lower than that recommendation of the 0.25, like you mentioned in the surviving substance campaign guidelines. Now switching gears uh, for a moment here, um, Patrick, um, as angiotensin II is recently made available, what is the rationale for using this non-catecholamine vasopressor? Yeah, so really the, the renin angiotensin system isn't a new concept and, and there's been lots of interest in it really since hypertension was first described in the 1800s. And it wasn't until the 1930s when angiotensin II was first identified as a molecule. And interestingly, back then it was referred to as hypertensin and not angiotensin II. And this was because it was, it was a, a hormone that was known to cause intractable hypertension. And so our classical teaching has been that this hormone is bad and we must suppress it and really that's what the you know several decades that ensued of, of um, anti-RAS uh, research has focused on. But really, this molecule has a very important role in, in blood pressure homeostasis. And part of the counter-regulatory system with, with the sympathetic nervous system and catecholamines, and also the vasopressin system with the with the pituitary. And so, you know, to, to recap, angiotensin II is obviously a product of the, of the renin angiotensin system where, where the uh, low perfusion pressure stimulates the kidneys to produce renin. Renin is then catalyzed from, from hepatically produced angiotensinogen to make angiotensin one, And then of course, the angiotensin converting enzyme converts angiotensin one to angiotensin two which, you know, in my mind really has two mechanistic advantages. And, and one is direct arterial and venous vasoconstriction through G-coupled protein receptors in the, in the vascular smooth muscle, but also hormonal effects through the vasopressin and aldosterone pathways uh, for blood pressure regulation through sodium and water regulation. So new drug, but not a new molecule and not a new hormone or a, or a new concept. Um, we talked with Gretchen about, you know, the surviving sepsis campaign recommendations for initiation of vasopressin, uh, but there's no formal endorsement by those guidelines for the use of angiotensin II. 
Um, so in what patients would you consider using it? And in what patients do you think that it could have the most benefit? Yeah, this is really one of the toughest questions to answer because there's not a lot of evidence to draw um, to draw conclusions from. And, and I, I, I like to think of this in two different buckets of, of really um, things that we have learned since the ATHOS-3 uh, phase three clinical trial. And the first of those is biologic endotypes. And so we, we've certainly learned a lot since ATHOS-3 and, and really a lot of the data that came from um, post-hoc analyses from, from the ATHOS-3 clinical trial data. And some of the information we've learned is that in, in at least the ATHOS-3 population, these, these patients had refractory shock. Um, there was an imbalance in their baseline angiotensin 1 and angiotensin 2 serum concentrations. And we, we know that the ratio of this imbalance, the angiotensin 1 to 2 ratio, was approximately 3 in the ATHOS-3 population. And this is nearly tenfold higher than the general healthy population that has an angiotensin 1 to 2 ratio of 0.4. And we know this is consequential because when you um, dichotomize the study median at, in the ATHOS-3 study that, that was 1.6, around 1.6 for the ratio, there was a higher mortality in patients that had a higher angiotensin 1 to 2 ratio. So this suggests that you know, a greater imbalance of this uh, angiotensin 1 to 2 is more consequential on patients' mortality. And, and this is regardless of what intervention they received in the trial. And this really boils down to the, um, to the physiology, and, and it can probably be uh, narrowed down to impairment of the angiotensin converting enzyme, where, uh, of course, angiotensin 1 is catalyzed to angiotensin 2 by the ACE, and there, there's many downstream consequences of this. Of course, you're not producing angiotensin II, which then does not stimulate angiotensin type one receptor in the, in the vascular smooth muscle. It doesn't have downstream effects on the vasopressin and the, and the aldosterone systems, but it also shunts the renin angiotensin pathway into the non-classical metabolites. And this is a lot of substrate, the angiotensin one that's accumulated is a lot of substrate for the ACE2 enzyme and neprilysin that then produce angiotensin byproducts such as angi angiotensin 1-9 and 1-7 that are profoundly vasodilatory. And so you have these competing things. You're not getting the benefits of the normal physiologic um, uh, stimulation of angiotensin II on receptors, but you're also producing all of these vasodilatory mediators. And this is problematic because all of this vasodilation then stimulates the kidneys to produce more renin and it perpetuates this negative feedback pathway. And we know that accumulation of renin is bad and really it's it's in a way a marker that, that sort of corroborates this hypothesis that this is a, a ACE deficiency or ACE impairment, um, because in the ATHOS-3 study, they plotted the um, angiotensin 1 to 2 ratio against the renins, and there was a positive correlation. And so I, I mentioned two mechanisms in, the, in your first question, Carolyn, but really I think the third beneficial mechanism of using angiotensin 2 is to stunt away from this negative feedback pathway and restore the natural the natural RAS progression. 
And so in subsequent um, Athos three postdoc studies, the specifically the Belomo paper in the Blue Journal, um, they dichotomized the median of renin and looked at patients that had high renin shock and low renin shock. And the patients, you know, that had low renin shock, they had no difference in their survival, regardless if they received placebo or angiotensin two in the, in the clinical trial. But the patients with high renin shock, these were the patients that had the greatest benefit from angiotensin II. And they had nearly twice as much survival at 28 days than the patients that received placebo. And in fact, it's one of the, I think, a very starking Kaplan-Meier curve where just at seven days after enrollment, 50% of the patients who received placebo were dead in the trial in contrast to 50% of the angiotensin II recipients with high renin shock were still alive at 28 days. And so I think the biggest question that this comes down to is how do we identify high renin shock, right? And so we have to think back where, where, is, the, um, where is ACE produced? And ACE is, is primarily produced in the, in the pulmonary capillary bed. It's, a, it's an ectoenzyme that's bound to the pulmonary capillary endothelium. And so likely anything that damages or disrupts this um, endothelium can be responsible for ACE impairment. And things that come to my mind are sepsis, trauma, toxins, really any type of inflammation. And this of course leads to endothelial dysfunction and uh, impaired ACE synthetic capacity. And we do have evidence that supports this. this there, there's some papers from the early 2000s that evaluate patients with ARDS and have measured ACE substrate and um, uh, synthetic ACE capacity and found that with increasing lung injury, you have a reduction in ACE synthetic function. And so I think this is, this is one big bucket of information we've learned from the from the post-marketing setting, but I think there's also a second big bucket, you know, the first one being the biologic endotypes, but the second one being the clinical phenotypes that, are, that we're now understanding from the real world um, application of this drug. And so we, we, we did a post-marketing post study uh, where we looked at all comers of angiotensin II and our primary objective was to, to really understand how, how it's being used. Um, but I think more importantly, who are the patients that are most likely to benefit from, from receiving the angiotensin II? And we found some very interesting um, uh, signals and, and really uh, some of this actually corroborates what Gretchen was talking about, vasopressin. The, the uh, story is very similar where patients that have lower lactate concentrations at the time they receive the drug, they have a better outcome. They have a better hemodynamic response and they're more likely to survive than those that, that had higher lactate concentrations. And similarly, Susan Smith's group at Georgia, they found that uh, patients that received angiotensin II when their norepinephrine dose was lower, less than 0.2 or less than 0.3 mics per kilo per minute, um, their survival was also greater than patients who received it when their norepinephrine dose was, um, was too high. And so I think both of these things really suggest that the probably the best scenario to use this uh, intervention is patients with less severe shock. 
So do you look at lactates before you start angiotensin two, or do you, do you guys have renin readily available as a lab at your institution? I'm just trying to get a feel for like, when would you consider adding it? Cause if it's, if someone's not on a lot of presser, is that patient just not as sick and maybe doesn't need it? Or are they in, you know, a high renin shock where they may have benefit from these non-catecholamine vasopressors? I think it's a great question. Um, And really not one that I have a satisfying answer to. And I think this is because um, to, to answer your first question about evaluating lactates and whether or not that is a standard practice, um, it is not something that I, I, that I do in my practice. Um, part of the reason is lactate is such a, a non-specific biomarker. And um, these patients have, I, I think we've seen this over the past couple of decades, the, the chronic critical illness, these um, patients that present with shock, they, they don't just have sepsis, they have X, Y, Z, other comorbidities, and all of these things are contributing to their acute decompensation. And so I, I think the lactate is, it, it, with that regard, is pretty nonspecific. Um, but I think what, more importantly, what it's signaling is the bigger picture. And that is probably these patients that, that have lower lactate in, in these post-marketing studies are the ones that don't have progressive disease, right? They don't have the end-stage vascular dysfunction where they're unresponsive to 100 plus micrograms per minute of norepinephrine and um, are, are the ones that are destined for a, a worse outcome. And the, the question about renin is very interesting because um, there, there are some, some data, uh, specifically Jean-Louis Vincent's group in Brussels that have evaluated renin and actually compared it to lactate um, in predicting ICU mortality. And renin might actually be more sensitive than, than lactate in, in prognosticating these patients. And I think this is interesting because, you know, classically and, and traditionally, we think of uh, hormonal systems to be these processes that take quite a bit of time to mature when there's an insult. Uh, but what's, what I think is very fascinating is the speed at which renin actually changes in shock. And it, it really lends very well um, to study, you know, uh, temporally in these patients. But uh, the biggest problem, and, and to go back to your question, is that there really isn't an available assay to test renin quickly. Uh, we do know that um, uh, we have renin um, and plasma renin activity, uh, which are not interchangeable. Um, that probably take about 48 hours um, to return. And so those are not feasible for, for bedside assessment. So now we've kind of talked about when to start it and, and how it works and who it may work in. You know, one of the um, remaining concerns about angiotensin II is um, our safety concerns. Um, so can you talk a little bit about... Um, safety concerns with angiotensin II? Yeah, I think this is actually one of the biggest, um, uh, you know, probably aside from from perceived cost, uh, the biggest barrier to its widespread implementation. Um, And that is, uh, you know, specifically the effect on thromboembolic events. 
And of course, angiotensin II uh, releases plasminogen activator inhibitor one and inhibits fibrinolysis. And so there, there's been a concern about thrombotic events um, in patients that receive angiotensin II. There was a, actually a really nice systematic review that Larry Bussey's group did, um, I believe it was about five or six years ago, and they uh, uh, identified over 1,100 papers that included over 30,000 human uh, subjects that received angiotensin II since the 1940s. It, it's quite the uh, data-packed paper. Um, and really, the, the, this, of course, was not in, in patients, you know, most of them weren't in patients with shock. Uh, angiotensin II was used for so many different indications, including some cancers um, in these papers. And the doses that they uh, identified in these papers ranged as low as 0.05 nanogram per kilogram per minute to upwards of over 3,000 nanograms per kilogram per minute, which is over... Um, which is over 100-fold what was studied in, in the you know, modern clinical trials. And the general things they identified was that, of course, angiotensin II increased the blood pressure, and there weren't really major safety signals from, from this large systematic review. They found that maybe there was some cough and chest tightness that was exacerbated in asthmatics, um, there might have been some uh, worsening of left ventricular heart failure, but generally it appeared to be a pretty well tolerated intervention. And so a lot of these thrombotic complications, they arise from basic science research and the known effects of angiotensin II, but also the ATHOS-3 clinical trial. And so when the ATHOS-3 clinical trial was published in New England Journal, they found a thrombosis uh, rate of about 2%, um, which was in contrast to the FDA labeling when the, when the drug received um, uh, an NDA. And that was uh, in, the, in the label, uh, the thrombosis uh, rate is reported as 12% as total thromboembolic uh, with 4% as deep vein thrombosis. And I don't have full insight to this, but what I suspect and, and from the information that I've, I've been able to um, see from, from the ATHOS-3 trial and their supplement is that the, that the FDA uh, categorized events. Um, and so the total thrombotic, um, thrombotic rate that's reported in the label includes things such as thrombophlebitis and like pick line clots and things that we would otherwise not consider as a clinically meaningful VTE in, in regular practice. And I, I think a, a very curious um, thing about the ATHOS-3 trial um, was that they reported safety events through the end of the primary end or the, the, the follow-up period, which was 28 days. And so patients were on study drug for 48 hours, um, but their adverse events were, were reported for, for four weeks. And so whether or not the, the, these are treatment related, I, I think remains um, a very important question. And in our post-marketing study that I mentioned earlier and, and Susan Smith's study as well, uh, both of ours found an approximately 3% rate of thrombosis in, in patients that received angiotensin II. 
But I think there's some important differences to remember here. And, you know, in, in regular clinical practice, we're not going, you know, bed to bed and doing ultrasounds on everyone's legs and looking for clots. And so these are probably underreported. Um, but I think the bottom line is, you know, there may be a signal there, but I, I think based on all of the information we have right now, um, it's, it's hard to determine the, the clinical um, relevance of this, especially in a patient population that has refractory shock, who's critically ill, that is at baseline risk for VTE in general. Absolutely. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit again. Um, so you guys have both talked about initiation of non-catecholamine vasopressors and when you would consider starting vasopressin and angiotensin II. Uh, but I think some of the remaining questions are, how do we de-escalate patients off of all of these vasopressors? And I kind of want to put these into two buckets because you both mentioned while you were talking that only some patients have response to vasopressin or angiotensin II. So can you each talk a little bit about how you would de-escalate somebody that either doesn't have a response and then conversely, someone that does have a response um, to non-catecholine vasopressors? And Gretchen, we'll start with you on this one. Sure. Um, I love this question because uh, I feel that the vast majority of people don't actually realize there's quite a bit of data regarding the discontinuation order of vasoactive agents. Now I'll take the caveat and, and answer that spin that you said about whether or not the patient is a hemodynamic responder. And I think there's still so much we don't yet know in the realm of what to do if they don't respond, if they do respond, how do we then create that algorithmic approach? Um, and I think that that I'll, I'll at least address that piece first. I think that is something that I look forward to with, with upcoming data. So I think we need to start adopting that approach of we initiate a vasoactive agent. If the patient doesn't have a hemodynamic response in X hours, my uh, study team typically uses six hours, then you alter, make an alternate pathway. And I think, again, there's a lot of questions on what to do should that occur. Um, so I, I think I can, I can only answer this question in the general manner because we don't really know how to tease out what to do if they've responded versus not responded. Um, so again, there's a lot of data, surprisingly, in this realm now when it comes to at least vasopressin with norepinephrine. Um, so there's several retrospective studies as well as one prospective study um, and a few meta-analyses too that have evaluated this question. And overall, the results have shown that discontinuing norepinephrine before vasopressin is independently associated with a significant reduction in the odds of developing hemodynamic or odds of developing clinically significant hypotension. So essentially stopping vasopressin first, you might see more hypotension. Um, but then I think what should be asked and what I ask is then, okay, so what, why did they develop hypotension? And it's really looking at what that definition of hypotension is, and it's typically a composite definition. So each trial, for the most part, when it was broken down, showed that this development of hypotension was largely driven by the need for an increase in their norepinephrine dose, which is not surprising at all based on how we titrate norepinephrine and how we don't titrate vasopressin. Stopping vasopressin when we don't truly know an equivalent dose of norepinephrine it's not surprising that the patient needs to compensate for that lack of vasopressin. 
Um, and importantly, the discontinuation of vasopressin before norepinephrine is not associated in, with any differences in clinical outcome, including um, mortality. So because of this, it's my practice to recommend stopping vasopressin before norepinephrine in patients recovering from septic shock. Again, knowing that my norepinephrine dose might increase slightly to compensate for this, which I make sure to educate my providers on, and especially my bedside nurses, and know what to look for, and that it is probably normal and expected to have to increase the norepinephrine dose a little bit. Now, again, to tie it back into whether or not they were a hemodynamic responder or not, um, the approach that I would take, at least again, this is not based on data, but if I have a patient who I know has a positive hemodynamic response to vasopressin, I would continue it, keep it running. And once I think the patient is recovering from septic shock and they're clinically improving, then I, at least, in, again, as I mentioned in my practice, discontinue vasopressin before norepinephrine. If they do not respond to vasopressin hemodynamically, then I actually think we should have an alternative conversation in that what are we missing and what can we then target next to achieve the hemodynamics of this patient? And if you're able to ask that or answer that, I should say, then revisit, okay, then should we peel off vasopressin because they did not respond to it? So at least that's my approach overall. What about you, Patrick? What's your approach, particularly when patients are receiving adjunctive angiotensin two? Yeah, and as you can imagine, the the evidence um, and availability of evidence just isn't there for angiotensin two. Um, and so I think I, I I think Carolyn, you nailed it when you when you said you know how can we um, apply the concept of a patient being a hemodynamic responder to this because I that's exactly what I do with angiotensin two. And really, it boils down to this concept of dose sensitivity with angiotensin II. And this was actually a phenomenon that was first seen in the ATHOS pilot study in George Washington, uh, where they randomized 20 patients to receive placebo or, or angiotensin II for six hours. And it was really a dose-finding study. Um, but later, after the study was published and they were able to unblind the participants, they found that two patients that received angiotensin II separated from 0.3 microgram per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine really quickly. And they remained hypertensive um, despite stopping norepinephrine. And so they had to back off on the angiotensin II dose. And these patients had rebound hypotension requiring resumption of norepinephrine when the six hour study period was over. And this was actually a, a phenomenon that was seen again with ATHOS-3 where approximately 50% of the patients that received angiotensin II had to go down on the dose from 20 um, to five nanogram per kilogram per minute or less at just 30 minutes because of their profound blood pressure response. And so to me, this signals that we're having more than just the direct venous and arterial vasoconstriction effect from angiotensin II that I described earlier. And to me, it really suggests that we are suppressing the vasodilatory production pathways. And these are the patients that I actually keep on angiotensin II at a low dose in favor of discontinuing other agents first, um, because it is providing that, that restoration. And this is actually a concept that I think has been uh, somewhat corroborated in the post-marketing setting where we, we've seen when you provide general guidance of how to use a drug that's recently approved, uh, there was actually a subset of patients that received angiotensin II and the drug was never titrated. 
And so it leads me to believe that these are the patients that clinicians uh, perceived that the desired effect was achieved from the drug and there was not necessary to titrate it. Now, we've, you've both kind of talked about using these non-catecholamine vasopressors as adjuncts, so adding on to catecholamines like norepinephrine, but are there any patients where you would consider using these non-catecholamine vasopressors as first-line therapy? Yeah, I think um, it's a good question. I would have to say overall, this instance would be relatively rare, but I can see probably some instances in which it might occur. So I'll go back to thinking about the pharmacology of these agents, particularly vasopressin, at least um, from that standpoint. And I think about when I would want to utilize it potentially as first line. So we know it's particularly vasoconstrictive in nature. So maybe those scenarios in which I'd want to avoid any type of inotropic properties. So I would think potentially someone with an LVOT obstruction or SAM physiology, um, those would probably be a scenario in which I wouldn't think it would be unreasonable, but the general, at least, um, patient with vasodilatory shock that doesn't have a cardiogenic component to it, I don't think we have enough data, at least right now, to recommend its initiation as the first-line therapy, but again, there, there might be some rare instances. What about you, Patrick? Are there any patients that you would recommend using angiotensin 2 as first line? Yeah, I think I would largely agree with Gretchen, you know, for the most part, no. Um, but there are, I think there are unique scenarios that we can draw upon physiology and, and pharmacology to um, individualize the experience for a patient. And, and you know, that uh, Gretchen actually mentioned something that's near and dear to me, and that's patients with diastolic dysfunction. Um, you know, I think the most apparent example is, and relatable is hokum. Um, and so these, these patients, I would for sure um, avoid beta-stimulatory uh, catecholamines. Uh, we've also had some, some quite unique experience, you know, although it's not sepsis, um, but profound vasodilatory shock from antipsychotic overdose. And so a lot of these new generation antipsychotics are um, heavily um, antagonistic of, of alpha receptors. And so all of the receptors are occupied um, by antipsychotic. And so they're profoundly unresponsive to catecholamines. And I think it's a unique uh, use case for vasopressin and angiotensin two, And I think the last one for me really is patients that have concomitant cardiac insufficiency with their uh, septic shock. And I say this because um, in my experience and uh, some of the patients that, that I treat, um, having more control over the titration of inotropes when the vasopressor is not um, a factor can be quite beneficial depending on the case. And so some of these patients, I, I would preferentially use um, uh, non-beta-stimulatory um, catecholamines. Now, just wrapping things up, um, what are future areas of research um, that you guys feel like we need to see more data on when it comes to non-catecholamine vasopressors? How much time do we have today? Um, I feel like I could probably list uh, dozens and dozens. Um, so I think, I think there's just so much that we don't yet know about both of these drugs individually and then how to utilize them together, which we haven't really had a lot of time to talk about today, but that's also extremely important 
is if we don't respond to one, do we add the other? What order do we add them into? I think the um, I think many providers could look at, at least from, again, from vasopressin standpoint, see vast and vanish, say overall no benefit. What more do we need from our data? What more can we do? But I would argue that we still use this drug in practice with many trials, several large randomized control trials saying overall there's no benefit, but we know there are niche populations that do benefit. And we need to tease that out further. We need to identify those patients more definitively and to decide when to use it, how early to initiate it, how to identify patients to initiate it, and then what to do if they don't respond. It's just touching the surface of things I think about, at least again, when it comes to vaso. What about you, Patrick? Yeah, I think for me, um, I think what's being increasingly evident over the years is that shock is very complex. And the mechanisms that are responsible for these patients' vascular dysfunction um, and hypotension can be very different. And I think that's one thing that we don't have a global grasp on, on how to endotype these patients uh, when they come through the door. And I think it's an extremely important question that needs answering because then the treatment can be guided, um, you know, and individualized. We, we, we know that 50% of patients don't respond to vasopressin. We know that there's a portion of patients that don't respond to angiotensin II. There's obviously a large portion of patients that don't respond to norepinephrine. Um, and how do we physiologically identify these patients um, so that we don't give them a drug that they don't respond to? Um, because the biggest problem is we're, we're giving these vasopressors, and if they're not responding, we're just increasing the time at which they're under a low perfusion pressure. And we're giving more opportunity for multiple organ failure and, and arrhythmias and toxic um, uh, side effects from drugs. And so I think one endotyping shock is, is going to be a very important direction. Um, but two, also identifying um, biomarkers that are suggestive of a positive response. So not only knowing what type of shock a patient has subsetted underneath vasodilatory shock, but also are there sensitive biomarkers that can predict a better endpoint with a specific drug? And I think those in combination um, can be very powerful um, in the future. Yeah, I agree. And um... We'll have Dr. Seth Bauer on uh, our next episode to really kind of talk about future directions and, and really kind of elaborate on these concepts that you all have touched on. Um, I just wanted to thank both of you for being here today. It was, um, it was my pleasure speaking with both of you. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you for having us. This was great. Thank you.